I want to pass on radical blessing, not radical dysfunction to my children. This is one of the quotes that New York City Pastor John Tyson shared with me today on this episode, and all I could think was, amen. In this conversation, we are talking all about raising boys to be good, godly men, and I truly have had very few interviews that I felt like I learned so much from as I did in this one, and you guys probably saw me on my Instagram stories just gushing about how incredible this discussion was. Pastor John talks about the difficult burden that many children bear, which is the unlived life of a parent and how that deeply affects them. The living vicariously through them puts this pressure on them that we don't realize. John shares about how men ache to be good at being men, but often lack the tools and resources and wisdom to do so. So he offers his own experiences as a father that helped him to build such a strong relationship with his son. He talks about the importance of a father showing vulnerability with their child and how to invite them into your life so that the bond isn't broken when your child becomes a teenager. You guys, this truly, truly, and I mean it with all my heart, is a phenomenal interview and one that I strongly recommend that you listen to once on your own and then again with your spouse. And whether you have a daughter or a son or you're preparing for parenthood, this wisdom is some that you should just store deeply into your heart. If you enjoy this episode, do make sure to check out episode 39, The Five Biggest Mistakes I've Made as a Mom, episode 46, How to Rethink Rewards and Discipline with Your Children, and episode 26, Overcoming Mom Guilt and Raising Godly Children with Jenny Lusco. Also, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here at the Living Easy Podcast. And we talk about everything from sex to healthy marriage to unhealthy relationships and joyful, thriving parenthood with a biblical foundation. As always, if you enjoy what you hear and enjoy the conversations, I would love for you to subscribe to the podcast and take a second to give a quick rating and review on iTunes to let me know what you thought. Follow along with me on Instagram at Living Easy with Lindsay. I share all of the goodness of deep, messy faith life and what God is teaching and growing and restoring within me and how those things that He teaches me can be poured out onto you into your life to help you strengthen your marriage, your sex life, your parenthood, your friendships, and so much more. So let's jump in to today's episode with Pastor John Tyson. We were never promised that life would be easy, but when we do it together, it becomes much easier. I genuinely believe that we have to be intentional about creating a joyful life. I believe in happy parenting, healthy marriages, long-lasting friendships, and making perfect memories in imperfect homes. But those things require deep, holy heart work. I am passionate when it comes to sharing vulnerably about the things that people are not always comfortable discussing, and I am passionate about sharing practical wisdom that has helped me to help you navigate through life less stressfully and more purposefully. On the Living Easy Podcast, you'll hear honest insight with a biblical foundation to help you become best friends with your spouse again, to love your motherhood so much that you don't need wine or even coffee to get through the day and to find hope in the very real trials and pain that we face moment to moment. I want to challenge you every Monday to live life with purpose, to choose joy, and to honor God with all that you do. Are you ready to fight hard for that sweet, abundant life? If so, I would love to do it together. So grab a cup of coffee and join me every Monday. I'm Lindsay Maestas, and this is the Living Easy Podcast. 
It's really cool that you're here <laughs> and we're technically in the same city. I would love to hear more about you. So tell me a little bit about your family and why you felt called to write this book about raising men, which by the way, I am just really, really excited for this conversation because I have two young boys. And as I read through the information about your book, it just got me really excited. So why did you feel called to write this book? Yes, yeah, so a little bit about me. I'm originally from Australia. I grew up in a city called Adelaide. When I was 20, I became a Christian the weekend I turned 17 at a Pentecostal youth camp. Radical conversion changed my life. Mm. I got a scholarship to study theology when I was 20. And uh, so I moved to a school called Tocoa Falls College. It's in northeast Georgia. Doing the campus orientation, I met a beautiful girl who I told my parents after living in America two weeks, I'm going to marry this girl. And they're like, <laughs> you've been in the country two weeks. Give it a little time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we've been we've been married for 23 years now. Wow. And um, so I have a son who's 21 and I have a daughter who's 18. And I think like probably a lot of your listeners, I just went through that profound moment of total overwhelm when I realized I was having a son. And we were living in Texas at the time and I was going to school there. And I remember the moment where they said, uh, you're going to have a boy and just thinking, oh, I don't know how to raise a healthy, godly man in a world like this. I just felt completely overwhelmed. My dad is a, is a kind man. He's a good man. But he was not handed the tools from his father. You know, he did his best, but his best was probably not quite enough for who I was. And so I had, you know, all of this baggage, all of these wounds, and I was like, I want to pass on generational blessing, not generational brokenness. And if I don't take radical, decisive action, I'm just going to just pass on all the wounds and dysfunction that I have. So it started me on a, a huge process. So it was born primarily by a personal sense of overwhelm. And then I began to see a trend. I was working as a youth pastor at the time, and I began to see a trend is that evangelical Christians just did not have a process to help young men in particular navigate the complexities of life into adulthood. You know, they play sports, they get on teams, they go to youth group, but that is very, very different than an intentional formation process to take from adolescence into manhood. So I, I did a bunch of reading and research and study and said, okay, I need to do this for my son. And as I was doing it for my son, I started when he was 13 I just had a ton of friends reach out and go, hey, man, what are you doing? You know, we need help. And so I sort of turned that into a course and then that got a ton of traction and feedback. And then a friend of mine said, hey, you should turn this into a book. Um, and that's sort of where it came from. So generational need plus personal ambition to, you know, raise my son in a godly way, the, the, the two big things. Wonderful. And I love that you were led by that conviction and responded in obedience rather than using that your lack of tools from your father to justify your ability to be a good father, that you stepped up and that you took, you know, you listened and responded to that con conviction and allowed yourself to learn and to grow. And now you are responding and sharing that with others. And so I just really appreciate that. And I actually spoke with my cousin last night. We're both raising boys around the same age. And I said, what questions do you have? Like, what would you be thinking in this conversation? And she just said, you know, I honestly just feel so overwhelmed at all of it, at the thought of where to begin, that it's hard to even ask. And so 
In your book, The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character, you say that it's not enough for our sons to become good men, but rather for them to be good at being men. So kind of our starting block, I guess. Can you expound on this point and share some examples of what you believe it means to be a good and godly man? Yeah, well, that response, that idea of being good at being a man versus being a good man is written as a critique, and it's not original with me. This has been pointed out by both sociologists and other leaders. But the Christian vision of a good man, so what is a good man? He's a good man. And a good man is probably defined as nice, trying his best, probably overwhelmed by a busy schedule and he deals with deep insecurity, but he's sort of like plugging along, living out of duty. Mm. So I started this when my son was 13. When you hold up a vision of like, hey, this is what it means to follow Jesus in adulthood. What 13-year-old is going to want that vision of his life? You know, sort of like an overwhelmed, bored, suburban dad struggling to get it together, dealing with deep insecurity. And I'm, I'm not saying that with any condescension. I'm saying that sincerely. Like a 13-year-old's heart has to be captured in a totally different way. So how this played itself out with my son, I designed this thing called the Primal Path. And, you know, it probably sounds like trucks and meat, but it was like it was hard to motivate a 13-year-old to want to do something, okay? So I tried to call it like something 13-year-olds. And we're doing this for a couple of years and he gets to the point where he's just like, why are we even doing this? And it was a great challenge. And I basically realized he had this sort of like generic opaque vision of adulthood and discipleship. And it was primarily defined by all the things you couldn't do. You know, couldn't really have good sex. You couldn't really make a big difference in the world. Otherwise, your heart would be filled with pride and temptation. You couldn't really go after the passions of your heart because that might be dangerous or whatever. And this has somehow just sort of like gotten in his heart in the water he drunk or, or something. And I realized that what men actually ache for is to be good at being men. So the difference is this, like there's certain roles that men have to master. Do you want men to understand women? Or, you know, the answer is yes. You want them to respect women. You want them to serve women. You want to hold them in high regard. You want men who are not addicted to pornography, who are faithful in their marriages, men who live with a passionate heart. You're going to have to go and help him figure out how to do that, how to both be the positive version of that and resist the temptations. And you want men to be good at following Jesus. And so I basically took like the typical archetypal roles and developed basically a skill set so he would feel confident in his competence in these areas of manhood. I think that's what men actually ache for. You know, they desire to bring value. They desire to make a difference. They desire to possess skills that help others. So that to me is like when you meet someone who's good at being a man, they're godly, they're helpful, they're kind. They're strong, they're compassionate, they're determined. And I think that vision is something that sort of captures the hearts of young men. So that's what I was trying to do. Get rid of that generic beige version of sort of Christian manhood, safe, passionless manhood, and replace it with a vision of something that they aspire to be. Well, and as you're saying that and, and sharing the contrast between the two, it's it's almost as if we're saying we're not raising these boys to look for the path of least resistance, to just kind of skate through and be kind and be good. But we're looking for the path of greatest glory to God. 
and to fight that fight and to go above and beyond and to live above reproach in that way. And so having those tools and giving them the ability through your book to have those tools, I think is such a gift. One thing, and kind of talking about women, actually, we had a conversation in the car on the way home and I was, (laughs) I was telling my son, he's six. And I was telling him like, moms are strong, you know, cause they just really, really don't think I'm strong and I work out, but I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm strong enough. Moms are strong. And we had a conversation because my husband said, yes, women are strong, but you still want to be a man who protects women and who fights for women and who stands up for women. So how would you say, how do you encourage that view of a boy growing up to be a man to care for his future wife, because we're already praying for his future wife, you know, to care for her, but to also support her and her mental strength and her endeavors and her passions and love. I can only speak to this sort of from my personal perspective. Theologically, I am not a complementarian. So I don't believe in male headship. I believe in complementarity without hierarchy. And what I mean by that is that men and women they are designed differently. To bear the image of God as a man and a woman means that we bear it slightly differently, but we're to do it as like co-heirs, having dominion together. So I, you know, want nothing to do with a vision of manhood that paints women as helpless and needy and just basically they only exist to fulfill a man's heroic desires. That's not what I'm talking about whatsoever. My actual vision of male formation is a little different because I think that male formation actually has to happen in the presence of men without women around, particularly at the formative stages, because otherwise we so quickly reduce to stereotypes. And I found this even in my my own home. So when I was doing this journey, I I did this for six years with my son. When I was doing it with him, so we'd get up in the morning before school and we'd do sort of like a devotional and a discussion in the mornings. And, you know, like even the women in my house would be like, oh, you're up early doing your man stuff. I actually talked to my wife and I was like, babes, listen, it, it's actually hard to do this without being embarrassed, without being shamed, without wrestling with all the cultural stereotypes, to figure out what to do with the hormones pumping through your body, your strength, your physical frame that is growing and changing. So, yeah, I want men to respect women as full equals in every area of life. And they're not in competition with women. So it's not like, well, in order for me to be strong, women have to be less strong. The question is, how do you bear the strength you have in a redemptive way towards others? So, yeah, I mean, there is things like developmentally and psychologically about boys testing their strength and their physical bodies. But I think that strength is best tested in the company of other men rather than any sort of comparison to women. So I want my son... My son's 21. I hope he marries a woman who is articulate and strong and gifted and a full equal, who is not helpless and dependent on him but can hold her own, who voluntarily chooses out of her strength to partner with another man who is godly, wise, and strong so they can do a lot of good for the kingdom of God in the world. So a part of my vision is, is respecting the strength of women and creating a, getting rid of toxic masculinity and raising men who actually view women that way. I think that's the greatest gift in a relationship is to have one of the greatest gifts is to have that teammate mentality to go toward, to fight together toward the kingdom. And I think that that has been a lot of the issue I've seen sometimes in relationships is, is this overly 
maybe just unhealthy masculine perspective of these are your roles, these are my roles, and you live that out and I will live this out rather than coming together to say, hey, we're living this life together. We're fighting for the kingdom together. We're raising these children together and caring for this home and our jobs together. Another question that I had is that a lot of parents I've spoken with through this ministry, through social media and within my community, they really struggle with the temptation to make their child a smaller version of themselves. So living vicariously through them rather than allowing them to be their own individual person. And you're wanting to frame them and help mold them and grow them and prune them, but also allow their character to shine through. So how do we train up a child in the way that they should go with those healthy boundaries without changing them or hindering their passions and their character? Carl Jung, the psychologist, said the largest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of a parent. This is when parents, you know, have not basically accepted their own limits and stage of life and they try and project their unfulfilled hopes onto the life of their kids. And, you know, as someone who's lived in Manhattan for a long time, I can tell you this is the default mode of parenting. Parents are handing scripts to their kids to live off that are simply extensions of their own personality and ambition. And um, it creates a painful amount of stress and anxiety and tension in these kids. It's hard enough to get through adolescence to be a functional, healthy adult, much less having generational pressure put onto you by your parents. So I think what I'm trying to do in this book, I basically at the start, I talk about five kinds of parents. So it's five kinds of dads, but it really is five kinds of parents. And between the fourth and the fifth, the fourth parent is the involved parent, but the fifth parent, which is what I'm basically trying to empower people to be through this book, is an intentional parent. An involved parent is the one that hands on the generic life wisdom and tradition to their kids. But the intentional parent goes a step further and asks, who is the kid that God has given me and how do I specifically prepare them for what God has for them, not what just I want for them, or what I think social pressure would want for them. How do I help release, know the heart, know the gifts, know the calling of the kid that God has given me? And then how do I design a plan to help prepare them for that? And I think that's the the difference we have to get to. It's like, it's listening, not just telling. It is learning and creating space for self-discovery. And so I think it's like 50% handing them the family, cultural, religious tradition, the best of that. And then 50% a process of self-discovery to help the parent figure out who their particular kid is. So for both my children, we did every battery of personality, vocation tests or whatever. And then I basically built sort of a curriculum and formation path based on what they sense God leading them into. Hopefully, I think that will stop us just imposing and putting pressure on our kids to be something that God hasn't called them to be. So, yeah, that takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more listening. It does take more intentionality. But I will tell you this, when a child feels seen and their opinion is valued during adolescence, it's incredibly formative for them. It says that, you know, we see you, we know you, you're a unique person in the world with a special call and I want to help help you fulfill that. And I found that my kids really blossomed in terms of self-discovery and identity when I began to craft some of the later work with them around who God had called them to be rather than just what I wanted them to be. Did you know that The Wife Project from Roommates to Soulmates will have its final official launch on November 7th? 
there are so many of you who are already on the wait list, patiently anticipating the drop of this course. And you will be joining over 1,000 women from ages 20 to 65 who have taken this course to strengthen their marriages. And a praise report, we have people from nearly every country in the world who have bought The Wife Project to improve their marriage for the glory of God. But if you don't know anything about The Wife Project, I'm so excited to share a little bit about it with you. So let me begin with a question. Have you forgotten what it is like to be best friends with your husband? Have you become more like roommates than soulmates? I think it's safe to say that there are very few people in the world who walk down the aisle to say I do while also having the thought, I hope I have a mediocre or failed marriage that ends in divorce. No, right? We naturally desire to have the best and healthiest marriages, a marriage full of happiness, spiritual growth, pleasurable intimacy, laughter, and faithfulness, the kind of marriage that thrives when God is at the center. But then life happens. We forget the promises we've made to God and one another because we're so caught up in the broken and worldly expectations of what we thought our marriage would be. We spend more time looking over the fence at someone else's grass than we do looking at our own and doing our best to water it and nurture it. And I totally understand that marriage can be difficult. You are two sinners coming together with different upbringings, different desires, and different personalities. Jesse and I have been through the ringer ourselves in different ways. And those things can cause conflict, confusion, and loneliness when it's not worked on by either person. Kelsey took the leap and invested in the Wife Project course, and this is what she had to say. Lindsay, my husband and I have been struggling for a little while now. There was nothing wrong with our marriage. It is just hard at times. Kids and work created stress on us and we love each other, but constant miscommunication and trying to fix each other has left us both exhausted and ready to give up. I'd been praying for a reason to keep fighting for us and to keep working at this. We've tried Bible studies, marriage counseling, date nights, etc., and nothing seemed to work. The Wife Project showed me God's vision for our marriage. I realized that I need to stop trying to get my husband to fill a role he was never created to fill. I began to understand my role in all of this. I also learned that I can work on the things that I can control, my attitude, my heart, and my intentions, and that that has a huge impact on his responses toward me. Thank you for giving me the tools I needed to save my marriage. I truly believe that you are a gift from God to our family. Friends, the fact of the matter is that there are two people within a marriage, and it can sometimes be tempting to point our fingers at what our spouse is and is not doing. But the truth is that pointing fingers and telling them what they're doing wrong over and over again does not fix anything. You were never intended to play God or be the Holy Spirit in your husband's life. God has called you to be a love him wife, not a fix him wife. So do you desire to run this race well, to fight hard through the mess and the muck while holding high the beautiful institution of marriage that God has woven into the fabric of creation? I have always been passionate, and if you listen to the Living Easy podcast, you know this, I've always been passionate about redefining what it means to truly fight for your marriage as a wife while challenging the false notion that the joy, the passion, and the pursuit of holiness in marriage will eventually just fizzle out. God has called us up toward holiness and commitment with the ultimate goal being to honor Him within our marriages. My heart behind The Wife Project is to challenge you to become more like Jesus in every area of your life, which then will flow deeply and widely into your relationship with your husband and break generational habits so that your children know what a healthy marriage actually looks like. Amy said this, I only just started following you a couple of weeks ago, Lindsay, and I'm so inspired by how relatable all the content is but it always comes back to how I can focus on Christ, and that is the key to healing my marriage. 
One more thing to add, the Wife Project has helped my patience and kindness in parenting. It is helping my entire home and the assignments are actually work that I want to do. This is a beautiful gift that you've given. I can already feel my wheels turning, my heart closer to God, and my whole being more gentle and tender to my partner. So good. Wives, it begins with you, and not because your spouse always gives their best, but because Jesus has called you to be a good and godly wife to honor Him. The Wife Project is an eight-week, ten-and-a-half-hour video course that you can work through in your own time, and you have lifetime access to the course once it is purchased for only $197, which is less than two marriage counseling sessions. I also offer payment plans to help you guys out. This means you won't run out of time and you can watch it for the rest of your life. It also comes with a 70 plus page wife project journal with actionable marriage challenges, memorization verses, and journaling questions to help you implement what you're learning right away. So click the link in my show notes on my Instagram link or on my website, sparrowsandlily.com to be added to the waitlist and to learn more about the wife project. Don't miss the last official launch. We will see you there on November 7th, 2021. Love you guys. I can hear my listeners' minds reeling as mine is. And in regards to that, how do you say, or what do you say, I guess, to the question of, but how do I give that freedom? And how do I feel the freedom to give that freedom in this day and age? You know, when it feels like there's so much, and not that our world has not always been toxic and sinful in many ways, but with the amount of resources that they do have, how do you allow for that growth while also being the parent and giving them the tools and the resources to make wise decisions? Yeah, I mean, if parents feel overwhelmed right now, they're feeling the right thing because I honestly don't think there's been a harder time to parent, particularly here in the US. And I agree, it's not that our world is more sinful, it's that like the access of that sin and the availability of it and the way that it's facilitated through our culture is genuinely unprecedented. So I have a lot of compassion for parents who are just like trying to figure out how to do it. And I commend parents who have ended up in a place where they're perhaps a little too possessive rather than being passive. Most of the pain I see as a pastor with a congregation with the majority of people are in their 20s is they say, I wish my parents had more boundaries, not my parents were too strict. The desire to put boundaries in place is a desire of love. It's a desire to protect and nurture. I think one of the things that we have to do, though, as the kids are getting older, is that we have to we have to set them up to win. We have to create structures of accountability. We have to do it piece by piece. We have to help them understand how trust is worked out. One of the things we did, and I, I got this from Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families, which is His famous book was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but the family's book is on how to create a family culture. It's an exceptional read. And he did a lot of his parenting through what he called social contracts, which is like designing agreements around issues and behaviors that kids have a say in. So the kids get to speak into the rewards and they get to speak into the consequences. And so you don't have to hover over them. You sit down and you have like a pretty reasonable conversation about You design a contract together. So a specific example, I felt like my son was playing too many video games and he was about (laughs) 15. So I said, hey, look, I can nag you all day long. I can penalize you all day long. But the second you go to college, you're just going to do this yourself if something doesn't change within you. 
So let me talk to you about why I think self-restraint is a virtue that will serve you well in life. Let's create some boundaries around this so that it could be like in healthy balance in your life. So we sat down. I made him listen to a couple of podcasts, just short ones, but on video game addiction and neuroformation and those sorts of things. And then I said, okay, so based on those cautions, what do you think is a good amount of time you should play every week for your video game? So we went back and forth and we came up with it. So we agreed on it. I said, what days do you think you should do it? We agreed on it. What should be the consequences if you violate this agreement? And so we had three-step consequences. The worst case scenario was he had to give his Xbox away for repeated violations. So we designed this and we talked through it. And so I wasn't like emotionally manipulative. I wasn't pleading and begging. I was training him how life itself works, which is, hey, did we agree to this? Do you think this is fair? Did you say here were the consequences if you violated this? Okay, based on our shared agreement, we're going to have to you know, make a change here. And surprisingly, I got almost no pushback because he had some involvement. So number one, I told him why. I educated him and brought him into my thinking by exposing him to some of the harms and dangers. I let him still be a kid and enjoy it. But when it was like when he did have to be punished and he had to be punished on two specific occasions, he didn't cry and scream and moan. He just simply said, no, I agreed to this. I don't like it. This is very fair. And so to me, I think in many ways, that's how life works. Life works through like mutual contractual arrangements. What is your job? You're in a mutual agreement with your employer. Here's the rewards, your compensation and benefits, and here's the downsides. If you do these things, you'll lose your job or be put on a performance plan. So I tried to help develop that in their early teenage years so that it would prepare them for when they had jobs and relationships. And that's the best way I know of to sort of set it up. It was very, very effective with my kids. That's very helpful. I think that that is something that I have found within myself in trying to navigate this. And, you know, the age of six is one where he's really discovering what he loves and what he enjoys and his character. And it's very different from me, you know, and I want to, I want to foster that. I want to foster that difference. But I do find that there are moments where if I disagree on something, it comes down to, I don't even know how to describe it, but kind of like last minute reaction rather than a response. There's a reaction. And I don't want to live that way. I don't want to parent that way. I don't think that's how God has called us to parent or to love. And so I really appreciate that. And you have just so many tools and, and ideas. And you mentioned that your father didn't pass those down to you. So how would you guide a father to raise a good man when they didn't have a good influence growing up? And how does your book speak to this specifically? So I basically talk about formation happening in four phases. So there's four broad movements. The first one is preparation. And I basically say, you know, Ronald Rollheiser, who's a a Catholic theologian, he said, whatever pain is not transformed is transmitted. Mm. And he, he says, if we basically don't deal with our own wounds and our own brokenness, we will unintentionally put this into the lives of our kids. Generational. We would say, no, no, I'm never going to do this. Yeah, but it's particularly under stress that we resort to our deepest wounds and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've got a whole, you know, literally 25% of the book is helping dads come to terms with their own stories. So I encourage dads to meet with their fathers if they have a father or if they didn't have to write a letter. And it's like a way of consciously acknowledging. So part of it is like you've got to make sense of your own story. And so there's a, a whole exercise in reflecting on your own life, like what are the blessings and the wounds? What do you want to carry forward? 
what you need healing on, what you need to leave behind, and how do you make peace with that? And then how do you codify that into a, into a set of values and lessons that you can impart to your son? And I believe this carries disproportionate power because they're personal and they're in narrative form. And one of my goals in, in helping dads do this, all of us have rich, rich wisdom that comes through pain and sacrifice. And I want parents to carry around not just like generic Christian wisdom, which I love and is so important, but I think the power comes from you being able to say, here's what God taught me. Here's what I went through. I'm sharing this from one life to you, my heart to your heart. Part of it is like making, and it's an exercise on making sense of your story, defining your wounds and your blessings. There's a geneogram exercise on going through your family history that's pretty robust on what you want to leave behind, what are some good things you want to carry through. And then, yeah, when you're ready and you're carrying this, this toolkit of lessons and wisdom and insights, that becomes a part of the deposit you put into your kids' lives. And it's one thing to say, hey, read this book. It's about some other person's great life. And it's another thing to say, let me tell you a story about what happened when I was 16. And I found that both of my children, though it was a little different, the program I did for my daughter was different. That's probably a different book. But it was the same principle. I would share from my heart to their heart. And those are the stories they seem most interested in. And so, yeah, you've got to codify and extract the wisdom and lessons from your own story, make peace with your past, and then have an intentionality and consciousness about what you were damming up so brokenness and bitterness do not flow and what you're releasing. So blessing life, wisdom, make it through your story into theirs. There is a lot of power in that vulnerability. And I think that there is something that within us that often feels like we need to withhold that information of the heart and of the trauma and the pain in order to protect our children. But I know even for myself growing up, the amount of things that my family, my parents would tell me, and when they would confess their struggles to me or their past hurts and the things that they tried that didn't go so well, those were the things that really resonated rather than sitting down and giving a book of lessons and lists of things not to do, but instead to share their pain, as you're saying, John, to, to express the physical burden that was placed on them by drugs or by alcohol and, and the emotional toll that those bad relationships took on them. To hear those things from someone that you admire and respect so much growing up and think the world of, to hear that they're imperfect and that they need redemption as well, that they're in need of, of the repentance as well. And, and to see that imperfection in them, I think is really, it bonds us, as you're saying. And you mentioned dealing with wounds. And one of a very, very common thing I hear from women is that their husband struggles with the idea of counseling because they think that it makes them weak. Can you speak to that? Oh, I, I believe everybody should be in counselling, <laughs> you know, of, of, <laughs> yes. of some way, shape or form. You know, maybe it's not formal counselling. Maybe it's just like a close brotherhood of men that you can just like get your heart right with and, and share your struggles with and be vulnerable with. But I, I think it's very, very important to get that out. Yeah, a lot of it comes from, I think, our families of origin. So if, if emotions were perceived as weak, if vulnerability was perceived as weak, I think the hardest thing as a parent is to give your kids what they need but you don't have. And that to me is the great challenge. But I'll say this, it is only love that will enable you to do that. And so to me, I, I've had to do things with both of my children that 
you know, weren't done for me that I felt very uncomfortable with. I had no instincts for, I had no practices for, but I was like, this is what health looks like and this is what love demands, so I'm just going to do it. And I think one of the things is like we want our kids to live from their hearts. The human story is a war for the heart. It's not just the mind, it's for the heart. And so we want our kids to have full hearts, you know. So I think when we share, when we model that, when we do it in appropriate ways, there's a lot of power in that. I I often find, you know, working with men that one of the deepest wounds they have. So you either get wounded by what your parents do or you get wounded by withholding which is things they haven't done for you. And wounded by withholding doesn't feel like wounding. And it's not till you see it manifested someone else you realise that should be in my life. But I see a lot of wounds because dads are not emotionally present with their kids. They're scared to open up. They're scared to be vulnerable. We have to model it. We have to do it in appropriate ways. You can obviously overshare at a time when your kids don't have the emotional maturity to respond to it. But again, I think I will say this to wives, You know, it's been my general experience that men don't respond to nagging as an effective mechanism of uh, desired behavior. Agreed. And so you will never nag your husband into emotional vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So it's like you've got to realize he's probably dealing with a lot of pain. He's probably carrying a lot of stuff from his dad that doesn't have an expression. And you can feel it can be terrifying to be carrying things around in your heart, but you don't know how to get them out. So I think it's a lot of patience. It's a little bit of a time. It's helping him see. I would say it's wives encouraging their husbands saying, you've got something to offer here. Mm-hmm. You may not be confident in this. You may not feel comfortable, but our kids need this and you have value. And then you reward the desired behavior rather than penalizing you know, the failures. So I think if that happens over the course of time, yeah, I'll tell you this, like every man's heart, I think, is opened at a new emotional level when their kids are born. And I think the key is to like keep it open, to keep it open. And it normally stays open to encouragement. Yes. I have an entire course called The Wife Project that focuses solely on and that, on the lifting up rather than tearing down. <laughs> yes. And I do believe that. And I think that I've seen that, you know, just like you said, the rewarding the behavior, there is so much growth to be had when we are willing to see the good and to encourage the good in a father and or in, in a husband or wife or mother, but to just say, hey, I really loved how you handled that, or I really loved how you communicated that, or, you know, just giving opportunity for the growth and for them to see the goodness that you see in them as a parent, because there are so many things that my husband has that I do not have, and lessons that, and tools and resources that he's been given that he pours down on my children that I'm so thankful for. And so rather than criticizing that he does something differently than I do, instead of rejoicing in the fact that God has given two very, very different people to our boys to learn from. I mean, when I think back to my own story, I mean, the level of empowerment and energy I receive when my wife voluntarily pulls me aside and she says, I just want you to know you are being a great dad. Mm. I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, that, that'll take, that'll last me a year. Yeah. You live in a time of such criticism. And I think dads have so many false stereotypes. They have the, the romanticized version of what a great dad is, as opposed to like what great dads actually do. You know, it's, there's a huge difference between those things. And so when you get encouraged for doing the actual great dad work, 
it just goes on forever. And just one little comment on that. Greatness, being a great dad in the Bible. So what is greatness in the Bible? Well, greatness in our culture is like crazy meta level Instagram worthy stuff mm-hmm. that not everybody's going to be able to do. But biblical greatness is honestly about sacrificial love. And so there's many, many people who had dads who were great in terms of our culture, fame, money, influence, recognition, and accomplishment, who were terrible fathers. They were culturally great but bad fathers. And there is a lot of dads who nobody has ever heard of who sacrificed, got up early, did hard things, worked a little bit longer, did things that nobody saw. And there's a lot of kids walking through the world who say, my dad was a great dad. And you've never heard of him. And greatness is about sacrificial love. And uh, so I encourage like biblical greatness. Don't let cultural greatness stop you from thinking that you can't be a biblically great dad. That's so good. In that there are, and I've said this before on a podcast episode, but the things that are done and said within the four walls of your home are a true sign and a, a display, I guess, of who you truly are. Because it's really easy to go outside in front of our neighbors and, you know, put on a smile and not yell at your kids and, you know, and hug your husband. But then when you get inside the four walls of your home, who are you? And that really is the test of your heart and of the work that God needs to do, but also it displays who you truly are, who he's made you to be. And so that is where the work begins and the rest hopefully will flow out into the world so that you're an example and a light of Jesus. But I strongly agree that that is where, you know, my husband is a quiet, silent type and he is, or, you know, just very (laughs) quiet, gentle. And he is such a good father and such a good husband. And, you know, he leads so much by his example and by his love. It makes me want to be better. And I know that it makes my boys want to be better. One thing about the family dynamic, I, I think one thing we got right with our kids is we explain to them why we act the way we do. Mm. You know, so, so like I would say to my kids, hey, kids, I just, I need you to know, I hate it when people are late, but I want to explain why to you. When people are late, it accumulates stress. You know, I've got a ton of responsibilities and a lack of margin messes up like a whole string of events in my day. And so I want you to know that like sometimes I realize I can be pretty aggressive if people are late. And uh, so, A, I want you to understand why it's important to me because after you've gone to school, I feel the consequences of this throughout my day. But B, I'm sorry if I am too pushy with you when you need understanding. And so we would just like spend a lot of time talking about why we do the things we do, where we're coming from. And then we would try and turn it into like family culture and family humor. And so it's not just, it's not always having to get it right. It's explaining why we are the way we are and the values behind it and the larger picture. So I found my kids were a lot more understanding and I was a lot more understanding of them when you knew the, you know, like the motive and the stuff behind the behavior in the home. Yeah, and it gives them the words and the tools to be able to communicate that back to you and to communicate that in the future. So in closing, my last question will be, what are some of the most important lessons maybe that you've learned or habits or patterns that you think that we should be teaching our boys? And how do we teach these things so that it resonates with them without creating a resentment toward the lesson or toward us? You know, so I spent years with my son. I mean, I felt like I read every book on parenthood, men, men's ministry, male formation. I could get my hand on. 
And if I could summarize the one thing, the most important thing, and the thing I put all my emphasis on, it would be this, maintain an emotional bond with your kids. Hmm. Maintain an emotional bond because that is the source that gives you the right to speak into everything else. And so I had one goal for my son, and here's what it was. I wanted him to say, my dad can help with this. So a lot of teenage boys, they hide their sin. They hide their rebellion. They hide their mistakes from their dad. I wanted my son to think, my dad is so for me. He can help me with this. So I said to him, hey, if you're in the car and people are smoking weed and you get pulled over by the police, you need to call me. You don't need to think dad's going to kill me. You need to think my dad can help me with this. Hmm. You need to see me. And so it's, again, that's if you're not smoking weed. But I'm like, if you get in a tough situation, if you're at a party and things are going wild, and you need to think, not I'm going to be killed because I'm here. You need to think, I need to call my dad. My dad can help me with this. And if you create an environment where your kids are willing to bring you their sin, bring you their struggles, bring you their vulnerability, because they view you as a safe source of help and wisdom, you will be able to navigate any of the complexities that life throws against you. My Very distinctly, my son came to me in his senior year and he said, Dad, I'm the only kid in my school. I'm the only boy in my class that has a porn filter on my phone. And the kids are making fun of me like, can you help me with this? Dad, there's a bully picking on me and I want to slap him. What did you do in high school when you were picking on He just started bringing all of these things to me because he knew he wasn't going to be penalized. And it happened because I created an emotional bond where he, he felt like he could bring this to me. I think we do that by entering into their world, you know. So I, I would never say when well, my son broke up with his first girlfriend, you know. I wasn't like, well, don't worry about it, mate. You're young. There's going to be lots of other girls. I, was, I entered into it like it was the greatest tragedy of his life. I tried to experience it and respond to it on the scale with which he was experiencing. And I followed that principle through. And, you know, ultimately it was one of those things where my son realized, I don't want to hide this from my dad. I want to bring this to him because it can help me. And I find a lot of times where dads in particular go wrong is they put the emphasis on behavior or information and not on the emotional connection. And if you get that emotional connection right, you will be able to address the behavior and the content in ways that you never believed possible. And so that's being a source of encouragement. It's it's praying for them. Again, a lot of things I did for my son, I felt very uncomfortable for doing. And I had no map or practices or I felt like I was making it up. But, you know, God used it. So I just say maintain the emotional bond above all else. And I think that'll be the life source that everything else sort of flows from. And your relationship to this day is, how would you describe it now, now that he's in his 20s? You know, I I actually sat both my kids down and I said to them, hey, I have a book coming out called The Intentional Father. And so two things could happen. Number one, Satan could try and like destroy our family because I'm putting this book out. So just be aware of hatred for me rises in your heart. But I said, you know, like I try to be really honest with my 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 flaws. And, you know, you know, I mean, my son just sort of pulled me aside and said, dad, I just want you to know you're a great dad. Like you did this right. And he said, you're the most, he said, your book's called The Intentional Father. He said, you're the most intentional father I've ever seen. I'm so honored by that. I don't think I did it all right. I mean, Mm. this is not like a Bible promise book where, you know, you read my book and I promise that you'll have a godly kid who will never sin. No, there's no, you can't control, you can't dominate like that. But I think this will give you a vision of what's possible and hopefully give you some, uh, yeah, some some hope and some determination to get it right. Yes, definitely a plan. So 
I'm grateful for my kids. Yeah. Well, and you should be honored and you should be proud. And I just want to say that because I have seen the example of good men and I have seen the example of bad men in my life growing up. And I am eternally grateful for the good men. And there are lessons that I can recall from when I was 10 and 12 and 14 that have resonated with me for the entirety of my life because of those good men that have impacted me. And so thank you for what you do, John. Thank you for your book. And if all of you who are listening, I know that this episode has resonated with you. If you are a mom or a dad, it is really powerful and impactful. And so make sure to check out The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character. And John, can you tell us where to find you on social media? Yeah, I'm on um, Twitter and Instagram at John Tyson, J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N. Perfect. All right. We will link the book and John's social media on the show notes. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, if you gained anything, um, we would love to hear from you. So make sure to tag. Let us know what you took away from this conversation. Share with another mom or dad who might be blessed by John's wisdom that he poured out today. And we will talk to you all next Monday. Bye, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to share the love. The simple act of taking a screenshot of this episode and tagging the Living Easy podcast makes such a huge difference in my little podcasting world. If you are blessed, challenged, or impacted by this conversation, someone else you know might be too. So please feel free to share a little hope and joy with the people that you love. If you haven't already, please take 30 seconds to scroll down from this episode or the podcast homepage on iTunes to give a quick rating and review. This makes a huge difference and helps in getting great guests for future interviews. Don't forget to follow along with me on Instagram for encouragement, devotionals, and practical advice on all the life and faith stuff. Love you guys.